I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer is a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen. Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart. I have to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stucky's ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long-ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. So now you know, and here's Bob Schieffer. Today we have with us on the phone David Sanger, the national security correspondent for the New York Times, where he's been a journalist for over 30 years. He served as the Times Bureau Chief in Tokyo, the Chief Washington Economic Correspondent, Chief Washington Correspondent, and he's been part of two Pulitzer-winning teams and has broken many stories, including one on North Korea's early nuclear programs and one linking the People's Liberation Army of China to the hacking of U.S. companies. His reporting on Stuxnet virus, a computer virus that the U.S. and Israel used to attack Iran's nuclear program, is the subject of a new Alex Gibney documentary on cyber warfare titled Zero Days. David is widely considered the world's top cybersecurity correspondent. Most recently, he's reported extensively on the Democratic National Committee email hack, possibly tied to Russia, and along with Times reporter Maggie Haberman, has published two lengthy interviews with the Republican nominee Donald Trump on his foreign policy plans. David, welcome to the broadcast. I, I want to start by saying I think your interviews with Donald Trump are the model for journalists. You didn't bait him, didn't argue with him, no gotchas. You simply sat down with him, asked his views on a variety of topics, then let him answer, and we got some stunning revelations. What, what exactly was your strategy with those interviews? Well, Bob, thanks for having me on the podcast. And uh, my strategy was sort of to follow the master, to have in the back of my mind, um, what would Bob Schieffer uh, be doing if uh, if Donald Trump was on uh, uh, on Face the Nation and Bob was doing the interview? And the answer was, ask very straightforward questions, but then drill down on their implications. So let me give you an example. Um, Mr. Trump has said many times in rallies and debates that he might pull American troops back from NATO or from Japan and South Korea. Uh, where we have, uh, of course, tens of thousands of troops uh, in both uh, theaters. And so I said to him at one point, after he went through his usual position, well, let's think about that for a moment. 
if the United States pulled back from Japan and South Korea, uh, those countries would begin to doubt whether we were serious that the nuclear umbrella still covered them. And as a result, they could very well make the decision to go off and build their own nuclear weapons, something that segments of both societies have looked uh, toward doing. Uh, what do you think of that? And he thought about it for a little bit. And then he said, well, you know, I think that's where they're headed anyway. So he said, I wouldn't have any objection to that. Um, and that was pretty stunning. I don't, can't remember another time we've had a presidential candidate who made the case that uh, two signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty could basically ignore the treaty and build their own weapons. Um, similarly, in our the most recent interview that Maggie Haberman and I did with Mr. Trump, which was during the convention uh, just a few weeks ago, we talked to him a little bit about uh, the implications of pulling back from NATO. And I said, if Russia ended up taking military action against one of the new Baltic members of NATO, former Soviet republics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, would you um, abide by the American commitment to come to their defense under the NATO treaty? And he said, you know, I'd look first and see whether or not what kind of contributions they've made to NATO. Again, stunning. We've never had a presidential candidate say that he might condition the alliance that the U.S. has signed up to with NATO since 1949 uh, by checking the contribution roles first. You know, what I thought was interesting about these interviews, they were sort of short-term observations where he says at one point, well, you know, going back to your uh, thing about uh, Tokyo and about Japan, yes, these things are going to become more expensive, and yes, they're going to become uh, more difficult, but Taking it beyond that, uh, that's the part I wondered had he really thought through uh, what, what the implications of that would be uh, in the long term. Because in the long term, it's not about money. It's about uh, China sitting out there, and, and how will China react to, to uh, something like that? Well, I think what comes through from the interviews, Bob, I think you've put your finger on just the right thing, is that he doesn't think in terms of traditional alliance politics. Now, partly that's because of where he's been. He has been a developer in New York. He's been a reality TV star. He has not had to think about what it takes to build and nurture alliances. And so when you talk to him about foreign policy, it usually becomes very quickly a conversation about a transaction. Why should we have this defense arrangement if we're running a big trade deficit with China or with Japan? Why should we have this trade deal? if over the long term it doesn't reverse our trade deficits? Why should we support NATO if in the long term our economic relationship with Europe doesn't make it worth it? So he doesn't think in the, in the terms that most politicians, military officials, national security experts have in the past. And the way they have thought has usually been you build an alliance because there's going to be a rainy day or a scary day where you need the help. Remember, Article 5 of NATO, the NATO treaty, which is the treaty that commits each signatory to come to the defense of the others, has only been invoked once since NATO came into effect uh, in 1949. And that one time was right after the September 11th attacks, where NATO declared that the attack on the United States was an attack against all NATO members and offered 
help in Afghanistan and elsewhere uh, against al-Qaeda. We initially turned that offer down, but ultimately made use of it. Do you find after these interviews that, I mean, I don't know any other way to ask this question, uh, that he is uh, somewhat uninformed about foreign policy. For example, he did not seem to understand that the Russians uh, had been and had gone into uh, Crimea and into the Ukraine. Uh, and uh, when in an interview with uh, George Stephanopoulos after, after your interviews, uh, Stephanopoulos said to him, well, aren't they already there? And uh, that, that uh, raised flags for me as to just how informed he is about uh, foreign policy in general. I, I remember back early on when he seemed not to understand the three different ways that we have to deliver uh, nuclear missiles and, and bombs, uh, the so-called nuclear triad uh, that is pretty much a basic of, uh, of nuclear strategy for as long as, as I've been in Washington. Uh, I must say I found that surprising. Uh, I did too, but Again, you know, he's not somebody, as he says himself, who spends a lot of time reading books, getting briefings. He views that he gets most of his knowledge from newspapers, from TV, from watching the Sunday shows. And uh, that he then believes he's got very good judgment, even if he doesn't have a deep base of, of knowledge. Now, that can be harmful, but in the primaries, it did not seem to harm him. When he said what he said about the nuclear triad, I think a lot of the traditionalists in the uh, in the party who were supporting him, or I should say non-traditionalists who were supporting him, basically took the position, hey, look, this is a game of the elites. You know, what are nuclear triads, details of NATO? We want somebody with the right gut instincts. The question is, once you get into the general election, does that work? Now, the, the comments that he made to George Stephanopoulos Uh, about uh, the Russians inside Ukraine reminded me the most, and I actually wrote it in the story about it that day, of something you covered, Gerald Ford's comment during the debate with Jimmy Carter, where he said that Eastern Europe wasn't under Soviet domination. This made him, somebody who had obviously been a longtime congressman, knew foreign affairs well, he just made a mistake or was trying to portray the world in a rosier way than it really was, but it made him look out of touch. The question is, does that same standard apply uh, for somebody like uh, Donald Trump? It's going to become particularly a big issue, I think, if and when there's the foreign policy debate when he's up against a former secretary of state. Let me bring uh, Andrew Schwartz in. Uh, Thank you, Bob. David, let me uh, join Bob in welcoming you to the About the News podcast. I promise that if this doesn't go well, uh, we won't ban you from it for future, you know, interviews. <laughs> uh, speaking of banning people from interviews, uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump has threatened to cut off the Washington Post, and he did cut the Post off until recently when he granted Philip Rucker an interview. He's threatened to ban other news organizations. He even told your news organization, the New York Times, that it's on thin ice. But Trump likes you. He really seems to like you. You haven't gone easy on him, though. Um, how do you prepare for interviewing him, and is there anything that surprised you about him in your conversations? Um, he's been perfectly warm and generous in the conversations. He said in a couple of rallies uh, that the New York Times he viewed as uh, you know, treating him very unfairly, but that he thought that uh, I had treated him fairly and, uh, uh, and that Maggie had uh, as well on these issues. And I think in part 
That's because we came to see him and took his foreign policy views seriously and asked him the serious questions you would ask a serious candidate and reported the answers very upfront. There's something else we've done here, um, which is we've immediately published transcripts of our interviews. And that's because we're in a situation in a political atmosphere right now where you get a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the liberal media took Mr. Trump out of context or asked a trick question or whatever. And what we found just looking at our own uh, digital reader um, uh, uh, numbers is that the transcripts have been read almost as closely as the stories. And they've also, I think, to some degree, uh, made it clear that if anybody wants to think that we've taken them out of context, they can go into the to the transcript and make that judgment for themselves. And I've been happy to see that even among those who uh, were the New York Times' greatest critics, I have not heard people say, once they've looked at the transcripts, oh, uh, Sanger and Haberman took him out of context, they misquoted him. Uh, whatever. I think these days, in, in particularly in things as sensitive as presidential interviews, it's important that we do that. And it's really a lesson from television and uh, from uh, you know Bob's days uh, at uh, Face the Nation, because there you could always roll the tape, and here you can always look up the uh, the transcript. You know, speaking of transcripts, our uh, crack researcher Lucy Boyd, who has joined me. Um, uh, recently, uh, Lucy uh, slogged through the transcripts of those uh, two interviews you did with Donald Trump, and I read uh, read them too. And uh, quite frankly, they weren't easy to get through because he rarely speaks in complete sentences and doesn't often uh, answer uh, the question directly. He he'll start out in one place and then zip around, and then several other. Uh, the phrases uh, pop in there. Uh, they're not easy to read. How do you interview somebody uh, like that? Is, is uh, just as a journalist, is, is this a difficult interview to conduct? Um, they are. You have to keep drilling back at the question. And one of the things that Maggie and I agreed going into these interviews was, if we didn't think we had a full answer, then the other one would would pick it up and try to drill down further. Uh, on that. Um, look, he's not a traditional politician, and he hasn't been trained in this uh, stuff, particularly foreign policy. And as a result, he doesn't speak the way you might expect Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or someone else who has been steeped in it to do this, which is to start off with your overall national interests, explain where you need to get, say, Russia to be, and then explain what you would do to operationalize that that policy. Frequently, he leaps directly to how the U.S. would act or react without first setting out the question of what is it we're trying to accomplish. And I think that's an important thing for the reader to see as well, because it gives you a little bit of insight, perhaps, in how he might react to an international crisis, an unexpected event. David, your reporting on cyber has opened eyes to an uncharted 21st century type of warfare in which the rules of engagement are often shadowy at best. Um, How do you report on such matters without compromising U.S. national security? Well, it's hard because almost everything about cyber is classified. But then again, a lot about nuclear weapons is classified. War has become declassified over time. And a lot about um, 
uh, drone warfare, for example, is also classified. Now, I would argue that in the cyber arena, it's overclassified, uh, and it it is because it's such a new technology, and it's one of the first weapons that ever grew up out of the intelligence world instead of out of the Pentagon. And intelligence agencies, by nature, classify everything. Um, so you have to go apply some of your own judgment and try to carry it over from what we've learned in covering those other arenas. And you have to start with the premise that the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they have a pretty good sense of what our um, capabilities are. They have a better sense because of the Snowden revelations now. And so you have to judge each American argument that something or another is classified and can't be published by what we seem to know about what is already in the public record, what you could reasonably assume that the Russians or the Chinese or others would, would know. You can't reflexively say we're never going to write about this entire new form of warfare simply because the government doesn't want to discuss it. And this issue came up in its rawest form uh, in the story that Bob described in the introduction, which was uh, the story of Olympic Games, which was the code name for the Stuxnet uh, virus uh, that was used by the United States and Israel to attack Iran's nuclear program. Almost everything about it was classified, but because the, the code got out, um, we were able to learn a lot about it and then trace back the decision-making. Much the same is happening now in the DNC hack, where, again, the code, some of the code got out and certainly some of the metadata got out. that tracks it back forensically to the Russians, even though the U.S. government has not publicly accused Russia yet. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, DNC hack. I mean, this, this is certainly new uh, for us in American politics. That I, I'm sure that you have the same feeling that I do. Uh, we both know that if Russia wanted to do this, in fact, that they certainly have the capability uh, to have done it. Are you convinced that this is the work of the Russians and that's, that's where this came from? Were they trying to interfere in this uh, campaign? And I guess the bottom line people are asking, uh, were they trying to help Donald Trump? So three really interesting questions, and the answers to each one of them may be a little bit different, Bob. So on the first one, was this the Russians? Well, there's never 100% attribution in cyber, but I have to say that based on the forensic evidence that we have seen, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence pointing back to the thought that the code was written in Russia and bears enormous resemblance to code that was written and IP addresses, Internet protocol addresses that were used by two Russian uh, intelligence agencies, the FSB and the GRU. The first one is the successor to the old KGB and the second is the military intelligence um, uh, operation. So I think forensically, there's about as strong a case I've seen as in any case since the North Korean hack on Sony. Uh, to your second question, uh, which is, were they trying to influence the election? That's a harder one to answer, Bob, because a lot of this um, collection began in June 2015, when they would have had a pretty good guess that Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee, but probably also would have assumed that, say, some other Republican would have uh, emerged as the candidate, uh, probably Mr. Bush, but maybe one of the others. They certainly wouldn't have been able to guess, as none of us could, more than a year ago that Donald Trump would be the nominee. The third question is, 
Are they trying to manipulate the election? Well, certainly the timing of the release of these emails coming just before uh, the, um, the conventions certainly seem designed to have a political effect. But that doesn't necessarily mean that was their intent when they first collected the data. They may have been sitting on it for a year and then decided later how to use it. David, based on your reporting and what you know, would it be considered an act of war by Russia on the United States? And what are the U.S. options on the table for U.S. retaliation if, in fact, this was Russia trying to manipulate a U.S. election? An act of war? That's a big stretch. But uh, there are times when cyber could be used in an act of war, usually in a destructive hack. So, you know, the attack on Sony destroyed 70% of their computers. Nobody considered that an act of war. But had they sent bombers over and bombed Sony's studio in L.A. to destroy their servers, we might have thought that was an act of war. So it's a little, it's hard to define an act of war in, in cyber. But we seem, to keep, we seem to keep moving the line where that line is. I mean, if, if a foreign country is manipulating a U.S. election, isn't that considered an act of war? It would certainly be an act of espionage and covert action. But let's remember, Andrew, we have not been above manipulating elections abroad ourselves. You know, there was a lot of work done by the CIA in Iran, certainly a lot in Latin America. I'm thinking of Chile and elsewhere. So over the years, the U.S. has done a lot to try to shape information that was out or conduct some kind of covert actions that may well affect succession. And to Mr. Putin, uh, he probably comes into this, if he indeed was responsible, thinking, you know, Hillary Clinton tried to mess with our elections. He's thinking back sure. to the 2011 Russian parliamentary election, which he decried as fraudulent, I think accurately. And in his mind, she started up protests against Putin in 2011. And while most Americans have forgotten that event, if they ever knew about it, I can tell you right now, Vladimir Putin hasn't forgotten about it. So it's very possible that he considers this to be tit for tat. So as a longtime cybersecurity and national security correspondent, is, is there a difference when you're reporting on cyber warfare uh, as opposed to reporting on conventional warfare or even asymmetric warfare? Um, the, the difference is several fold. First of all, a lot of cyber activity I would define as short of war. They uh, are conducted in an effort, like many covert actions by the United States and others are, in an effort to influence events without causing such a reaction that you would have open hostilities and counterfire. There have been other short-of-war actions. The Cold War was full of them. Uh, so that shouldn't be all that surprising. But it's an extremely effective vehicle for short-of-war conflict. So that's number one. Number two, one of the great difficulties of cyber is it's often difficult to see the attack. You know, if there's a drone attack, you read about it within 24 hours in the Pakistani press or wherever. If there's a nuclear weapon that goes off, you sure know about it instantly. And fortunately, there have, have not been since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in cyber, you may never know, or you may only discover it eight months or a year later, which is one of the reasons that many countries don't necessarily react the way they would to a military attack that's more obvious. David, I want to get back to uh, this this connection, if there is such a thing, between uh, Putin and Donald Trump. 
I mean, we know he has used uh, Russian investors to finance some of his uh, projects here in the United States. We know that he has tried for years to establish some kind of a business in Moscow. So far, as far as we can tell, uh, he's been unsuccessful in that. But you keep hearing rumors, and they're, they're absolutely nothing more than that, that there may be other connections, financial connections. Uh, what does your reporting uh, show so far about that situation? Well, certainly Mr. Trump has sold some of his condos to Russians. Not all of them were Putin's friends. Uh, some of them were Russians looking to park their assets outside of Russia. Certainly he has sought business in Russia, but never in the end ended up building hotels or others there. And then there's the fascinating connection of his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who worked for the Ukrainian strongman who was ousted in 2014 and was basically a Putin ally. In fact, he's now living in exile in Russia. This is Viktor Yanukovych, and, and he, uh, is, he was forced out. And for years, he had hired Paul Manafort's um, lobbying firm uh, to help him shape his image and appear more pro-Western in the Ukraine. So uh, that's a fascinating connection, but we don't know the degree to which Donald Trump himself was either aware of these or involved in these. I think you certainly could say that many of the things that Donald Trump has said about wanting to rebuild a relationship with Russia, about not appearing to be uh, extremely concerned about the annexation of Crimea, about raising open the possibility of lifting the sanctions on Russia for its annexation of Crimea and its uh, participation in attacks on the Ukrainian government, those certainly all have coordinate interests with Vladimir Putin. And so we've got the, the oddity here, Bob. I mean, how many Republican uh, races or candidates for president did you cover who tried to move to the right of Democrats in their hostility first to the Soviet Union and then to the Russians? And now suddenly we have somebody who appears much more interested in friendliness with the Russians than the Democratic candidate. I mean, the world really is turned upside down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a friend of mine told me the other day, uh, watching the Democratic convention, said it's the best uh, convention the Republicans have had in a long, long time, just to the point uh, that you're talking about. David, what are our allies thinking about this campaign season that we're having here? Uh, what are the people overseas? How is this playing in other places, not just the United States? Well, enormous nervousness, as you could imagine, not only because of the prospect that Mr. Trump might get elected, but because this has been a campaign in which many American connections to the rest of the world and its commitment not only to defense relationships and alliances, but uh, global free trade have been questioned. Remember, both candidates, and, and before it was down to two, Bernie Sanders included, uh, all the candidates basically came out against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big trade agreement with Asia. No one believes that TTIP, the big uh, trade negotiations underway with Europe, is going to go anywhere. And so their concern is that even if Donald Trump loses, that you've seen a turn in the American electorate away from our defense commitments and away from free trade, which, of course, was traditionally a Republican Party issue. Well, you know, uh, one of the things Trump has been saying is that um – is that the Obama administration has uh, left questions in the minds of our allies uh, about our commitments. And I think 
my sense of it is there are questions, and there were questions going into this campaign, but now there seems to be an added uncertainty, uh, if I'm hearing what you're saying, among our allies. How would you characterize America's place in the world right now? I would characterize us as being viewed as a much more uncertain ally uh, than we have been in a long time. And as you rightly point out, a lot of that goes back to the Obama administration, while President Obama disputes it and says that he thinks the red line decision on Syria was one of his finest moments. There are many others who who, uh, disagree uh, with that position and believe, in fact, that that unnerved uh, the allies when he had initially threatened to bomb Syria if they made use of chemical weapons and then came up with a, a diplomatic answer. A diplomatic answer that worked and got most of the chemical weapons out of Syria, but nonetheless made them think that he pulls back from military action. You know, with, even with the, what Mr. Trump is saying about NATO, there are echoes of it in the, the Obama administration. It was President Obama who decried free riders in NATO. It was uh, Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense under President Bush and then President Obama, who gave his last speech in Europe before he left as Secretary of Defense, saying, you know, there's a whole generation of Americans who have no memory of the Cold War and will not support NATO if you guys don't pay for more of your own defense. So I think what Mr. Trump has done is he's grabbed a hold of a live issue on which there was bipartisan agreement, but he's then taken it to an extreme by saying, and if you don't pay more of your own defense, we're not here for you at all. We're just pulling out which is basically an argument that the United States doesn't have independent national interests in peace in Europe, in countering Russia, in maintaining a presence in the Pacific that would counter China. So, David, let's talk about cyber a little bit more in the midst of discussion about our allies. You know, cyber seems to be at the heart of a lot of things these days. You, you know, of course, are, are my favorite new movie star. You're, you're in Alex Gibney's new documentary, Zero Days, which is based on your reporting on the Stuxnet virus and what the U.S. and Israel did to slow Iran's nuclear program um, by engaging an offensive cyber weapon. Um, we understand the film may be up for an Academy Award, the smart bet, as it will be. Um, but more to the point, how do you think your reporting covered new ground? Uh, and why is it important? Why is it an important moment in journalism? At least I think it is when it comes to understanding cybersecurity. You know, I think one of the the big uh, mistakes we often make in journalism is to believe that we've seen all of these stories before. And cyber clearly is a new weapon that, in many ways, opens up new ways for countries to go compete with each other, undermine each other do much more than traditional espionage. The Stuxnet story uh, was a story, which is the one played out in Zero Days, was uh, the story of using a cyber weapon to do something that previously you could only do by going in and dropping saboteurs into a country or bombing the country. So it opens up all kinds of new options. In the DNC hack, there's nothing new about espionage on political parties. We do that to them. They do that to us. But releasing the emails, weaponizing the material, then gets to the question of, is a foreign power messing with your election? So there's, I think it's always important to step back and ask, are we seeing something new here, uh, something different? And I think in cyber, the answer to that is usually yes, that the introduction of cyber techniques often changes the landscape. 
And I think that's what's been, to my mind, most interesting about the reporting. And as somebody who started up as a technology reporter in the 80s when personal computers were first uh, coming out, that's why I find it so fascinating. And I find it fascinating that it meshes national security and technology. I think a lot of young reporters feel the same way. What's your advice to them as they start to report on cybersecurity and the complexities of, of this electronic world we live in? I think that the first thing to remember is, well, there's a lot of reporting on cyber that has to do with basically the you know, how do you protect yourself, how do I keep my Gmail account safe, how do I keep people out of my uh, bank account. And that's all important, and we need to go do it. There's a temptation to look at cyber as a technology story alone, and it's not. It's a story about national security. It's a story about how our, the systems that we rely on in our ordinary lives, from the power grid to the cell phone network to our nuclear response capability, all rely on, on electronic networks that can be interfered with. And, and it's a story of people. You know, behind every piece of malware, behind every code, there's a beating human heart someplace of somebody who is trying to change world events or local events. Sometimes they're just criminals. Sometimes they're nation states. Sometimes they're teenagers sitting in a basement. But whatever it is, they've each got a story, and it's important to remember that. For new reporters who are coming in, I always tell them, you know, cyber is your way in to a crowded journalism field because it enables you to go in so many different directions. You could be a technology reporter. You could be a lifestyles reporter. You could be a national security reporter. Uh, you can make use of this in so many different arenas. David, give me your uh, thoughts on journalism in general right now. We know newspapers are in big trouble, paper newspapers. Are we more informed than we used to be, or are we just overwhelmed with so much information we can't process it? You know, Bob, it's a very hard question, and uh, you and I have talked about it at, at various moments over the past few years. And I guess where I'm coming around is both is true. We have huge information overload, and we have a difficult time both digesting it and analyzing it. One problem with the Internet, of many, is that it leads to such a proliferation of opinion, because the cost of putting your opinion out there is so low, the ease of access is so great, that you have opinion overwhelming facts. And people frequently can't tell the difference. You know, when you picked up a newspaper in the old days, you picked up the New York Times, you knew what was on the front page and in the news sections was our best effort to get it reported fact. And then you flipped to the editorial page and the op-ed page, and you knew you were reading opinion. On the web, it's jumbled together. And on television, particularly cable television, it's really jumbled together. I mean, something happens at 6 p.m. at night every night in America where people turn on the channels that reinforce their political views, whether it's MSNBC on the left or Fox News on the right. And so there's not as much, or even if there is the same amount, it's more drowned out of what you did for years, which was first reported journalism and then a Sunday show that played it right down the middle and was just trying to extract fact and understanding. And people with opinions went on, but they were challenged on those opinions. And what I worry about the most is that that's being drowned out. David Zanger, one of the best in journalism. David, thank you so much. For Andrew Schwartz from CSIS, this is Bob Schieffer.
If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at csis.org. And check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.